I'm journalist Carolyn Osorio, and I invite you to join me and my co-host, Brandon Morgan, on our podcast, Criminal Mischief. From law enforcement officers seeking justice to victims' families seeking answers, every week there's a new case and a new victim whose story deserves to be told. New episodes of Criminal Mischief drop every Tuesday. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, hello there. I'm your host, Simon. What happens here? If you're new to the show, well, first of all, a very big welcome to you. Thank you for joining me and uh, Kevin, who wrote today's script. The format of the show is the Kevin... One of the writers on this channel has written me a script. I've never read it before. I have, of course, heard of this case because it's extremely famous. It's the John Bennett Ramsey case. And uh, what a way to start my Tuesday. The murder of a six-year-old. Brilliant. This is going to be a cheery rest of the day while I think about the murder of children who are close to my own children's age. Not really. My kid's like nearly three. They're two and a half. But still, it's children. I don't like it. I mean, I like children. I don't like them getting murdered. Controversial statement there, Simon. Uh, Let's get into it. Whenever I write a script for one of Simon's cold reads, I always try to remember to tell people to get in the comments at some point in the episode. Yeah, I have to say, Kevin, I know you do. And I often cut it out because while this is a YouTube channel, it's also a podcast. And I like to kind of keep it as generic as possible so people can enjoy where they're listening. People can enjoy whether they're watching um rather than just treating it just as specifically one thing or the other the way i describe it is it's a show it's not a youtube channel it's not a podcast it's a show and that also makes me sound pretentious as so that's nice however today is different of course i want to feed the analytics gods but at the same time because of the heavily contested nature of every single detail about this case i don't want to hear it from you that's right we're opening by getting aggressive with the audience I, I, i mean people are free to like spout off their own opinions like, I made a video on one of my other channels about conspiracy theories. And I was like, yeah, you can use the comments to uh, make people believe how silly you are. And use the comments, it's fine. Maybe after reading this, I'll be like, don't use the comments. Please don't. Please, no. The same qualities that make the murder of John Bennett Ramsey one of the most popular and notorious cold cases in American history are the same qualities that lead to some of the most toxic comment sections I've ever seen. And when someone who plays League of Legends has the balls to refer to another group of people as toxic, you know there is a problem. I didn't know the League of Legends um, community was so toxic. I honestly am not even entirely sure what League of Legends is. Is that like some World of Warcraft? You know, the... uh, massively multiplayer online role-playing games mmorpgs am i getting that right i imagine like this sort of stuff like there's a star trek one and i can just imagine i'd love that shit and that's exactly why i don't play it because i don't want my life to be swallowed by whatever star trek's version of warcraft is because i'd be like oh my god i'm the captain (laughs) what do i do today if i go to work no well yes but i'm just gonna play star trek warcraft I had just turned 14 years old when John Bennett Ramsey was killed, but from what I remember, the media had laid out a very clear narrative at the time. The narrative seemed to be that, for reasons unknown, John Bennett Ramsey was murdered by parents, and there was absolutely no doubt that this was the case. To be fair, what is this? I mean, I don't think that's very often the case in casual criminals. Normally, like everyone knows from CSI, from true crime, from movies, whatever, it's always the husband, it's always the wife. But I don't think it's often the parents. <laughs> I don't think there's a lot of infanticide, parents killing children. Uh, I'd say that's got to be quite unusual because it's like, who's the last person you'd want to kill? My child. Even though they absolutely drive me potty sometimes. Last night I just got home from work. 
long 11 hour day which was nice <laughs> just been savage lately i get home and it's just oh good i can hear the kids screaming from outside the front door and i'm like ah oh, here we go <laughs> To be fair, when I was 14, I also worked part-time bagging groceries, and if any more nuanced discussions existed in the news, it may have been erased from my memory by the sensationalist headlines of the trash they sold in the checkout aisles like the National Enquirer and the Weekly World News. I don't know about those. I have no idea. Uh, we, we in the UK, we have our own versions of like trash papers. There's The Sun, there's Daily Sports, which is exceptionally trashy. The Daily Express which is just kind of a racist <laughs> allegedly as a, there's a joke like there's a couple of like far right or you know daily mail's right and then you got the daily express which sits somewhere further of the daily mail and there was a joke when i used to work in a news agent that the only reason the daily express exists is to make people feel better when they buy the daily mail so it's like oh i don't read the daily express do i though no no god no just the daily mail which only hates immigrants a little bit despite so many people being convinced of who the guilty party or parties was no arrest has ever been made in the case and despite there being four tv movies a netflix documentary a dr phil interview 15 books and countless hours of internet content surrounding it there are very few actual facts about this case. It seems that virtually every detail about this case, no matter how seemingly meaningless it may be, remains a matter of heated debate among experts. This exceptional amount of doubt regarding the details of the cases resulted in four main theories, each of which is both unprovable and irrefutable. And naturally, aren't those contradictory terms unprovable? But when I guess we're going to find out how that works, because that seems contradictory. Unless my brain is small and those words don't mean what I think they mean unprovable means can't be proved irrefutable means like like the evidence is you know you're dim when you're like you can't give the definition for a word but you can use it in a sentence like the evidence was irrefutable beyond doubt right so these are oxymoronic terms no i'm so small brain sometimes and naturalist sometimes most of the time and naturally the main theories of countless offshoots as well we're going to look at every variation of the possible facts as they apply to every possible theory for this reason i welcome you to today's extra long casual criminus which will serve as part one of our eight-part series on the murder of john bennett Ramsey. okay not really <laughs> oh god kevin i was like oh my god i don't remember signing off on this kevin <laughs> also i didn't realize this was extra long i i didn't bring an extra cushion for my chair i'll probably go get that halfway through the episode Okay, not really. I could write that much about this case because there's just so much to be covered, but I don't think Simon is interested in an eight-part episode. I do wonder about this. I wonder if, like, doing doing an eight-part episode makes absolutely no sense economically. Because in my feeling would be, just because of the setup of this channel, we do, like, eight parts, and over the course of eight parts, gradually less people are going to watch. So by the time you get to part eight, because some people are going to get hooked into it, for sure, but no matter how good we make it, some people will just not finish, because they just won't be into it. And then by the time you get to episode eight, you just have, like, way less views, and it's like, why didn't I just make a regular episode? I mean, I love the idea of making, like, an eight-part episode on something, but I just also don't like the idea of just flushing money down the toilet, because... I can use that to make content that makes money and then I can make more and better content. It's like what I do. I don't know. If there's enough demand for like some eight-part investigation into something, I'm definitely down. But I don't know how that would work. To give you an idea of just how much material there is about this case, here is an official photo released by the Boulder Police Department on the room dedicated to files on John Bennett Ramsey. Um, so it's a, it's for our audio listeners, I'm sure for video listeners, Jen is putting an image on the screen. For our audio listeners, it just looks like a office room. Um, 
like three cabinets wide i have to say i i don't know if i'm supposed to be super impressed by this amount of evidence kevin but i'm like in my mind i was hoping you'd show me you a picture of a warehouse or something you know just filled with files because i guess that's what movies have made me think about but whatever if for some reason you actually want such a deep dive feel free to get in the comments otherwise sit back relax and enjoy this tale of murder mystery jealousy deception international terrorists oh my god contaminated crime scenes at least six defamation lawsuits both on behalf of and against the ramsey family and most importantly pineapple yes that's what we call a hook if you want to find out what all of these things and how they relate to the case especially the pineapple one, you're just gonna have to keep listening aren't you that's how we do it on the show viewer attention baby the life of john benny ramsey We're just going to hit the highlights here for the sake of brevity. John was born in Lincoln, Nebraska in 1943. Oh, okay, sorry. This is John Bennett. J-O-H-N-B-E-N-N-E-T. Um, and then there's John Bennett Ramsey. Should that be pronounced John Bennet? It sounds kind of French, doesn't it? Let me just... Uh, let's have a quick check. Make sure we're doing it right. It is the subject of today's video. Also, like I've heard of this case, but it wasn't like a new sensation in the UK because it's an American case, so I'm not familiar with this. Like I'm sure many Americans are. Let's have a quick perusal. It's not in my pronunciation dictionary. Oh, it is John Bonnet. John Bonnet. Sounds very French, doesn't it? Everyone has already been in the comments commenting like, Simon, you didn't even look up the pronunciation. I just assumed it was John Bennett because it looks like John Bennett, doesn't it? There's even a man here telling us how to pronounce it in a specific video. John Bonnet. Thanks, mate. When was the last time you watched a YouTube video with 203 views? <laughs> Weird. John was born in Lincoln, Nebraska in 1943. He earned his bachelor's degree in electrical engineering in 1966. That same year, he married Lucinda Pash and joined the U.S. Navy, where he served in the Civil Engineering Corps. After serving three years in the Philippines, he served in the Atlanta Reserves for eight years. During this time, he also earned his master's degree in business administration and had three children with Lucinda, a son and two daughters. In 1978, at the age of 35, he decided it was time to trade in for a younger model. He divorced Lucinda and two years later married the 23-year-old Patsy Poor. In 1987, they had their first child together, Burke, and two years later, their daughter, John Bonet was born. The same year his daughter was born, he had formed the company Advanced Product Group. That sounds like extreme. You know when you see like you know supervillain, you know uh, company names or whatever. It just sounds like super generic. <laughs> Love it. It would be later be one of three companies to merge to form Access Graphics, a computer company that would become a subsidiary of Lockheed Martin. Someone made some money. As president and CEO of Access Graphic, it's fair to say that John was doing pretty well for himself. In 1991, John and his new family moved to Boulder, Colorado for his work. The following year, his eldest daughter, Elizabeth, and her boyfriend died in a car accident. She was 22. Oh, that's so sad. The past was the worst. Like, people used to die in car accidents. Have you guys seen that um, TV show? That new Apple show? It's on Apple, right? Severance. Where, uh, it's, we're not really sure where the, where, when it's set. Because it seems to be very modern, but the computers they're using are all old. The mobile phones they're using all seem to be like 10 years old rather than decades old. The cars they drive seem straight out of the 1980s. And the main character's wife, it's not a spoiler, it's in the first episode, dies in a car crash. And you're like, whoa, that's unusual. And then you realize, oh, they're driving around all these old cars. And people used to die like, people still die in car crashes. But it's like crazy less now. I remember, I'm pretty sure I've told this story before, like, uh, just what really struck home to me about how safe cars have become is that like, I remember my dad saying like, yeah, 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 I knew someone who died in a car accident. Everyone knew someone who died in a car accident. It's like, what? 
It's like now I don't know a single person who's died in a car accident. I know of people like um, friends of friends or whatever. But then you know that it's really unlikely. But back in the day, it's like, yeah, you know someone. Of course you do. Because people would die in car accidents all the time because they had no safety features and people didn't like seatbelts. Idiots. Most reports indicate that John had a pretty hands-off style of parenting, which is to say that he was rarely home and always working. This gave Patsy plenty of time to play favorites and live vicariously through her daughter. Oh. That's a bit weird. What did he get her time to, like, spend with the kids and raise them properly? <laughs> okay. The Life of John Bonet Ramsey Born on August the 6th, 1990, which is crazy because this is such an old case and she was murdered so young. She's, if she would be alive today, is younger than me which is crazy. JonBenet was Patsy's pride and joy. More importantly, unlike Patsy's first child, JonBenet was a girl. This meant she got to carry on the family tradition of competing in beauty pageants. Oh, lucky her. That's not going to f*** up her kids, is it? I, I don't understand this. Like, beauty pageants for children is f***ing weird. It's weird, and anyone who says it isn't weird is weird themselves. It's like, why are we doing this? Like, we're putting kids. How old was this girl? Didn't she get murdered when she was, like, six? She's being put in, like, makeup and pretty dresses. What the f*** are we doing, society? Both Patsy and her sister had won the crown of Miss West Virginia, and she wanted John Bonet to follow in her footsteps as a way to reclaim her former glory. Wow, also, how about people don't live vicariously through your children? I, I just And I know it's really hard, because I'm like, oh my god, it'd be really cool if my kids did this or that, and you're just... I've always just in my mind, I've got to check that because it's like or or simon you could let your kids do what they want to do rather than by pushing your unfulfilled dreams onto them <laughs> okay okay how about we try that father that probably sounds extremely cynical but let's be real here child beauty pageants weird and creepy agreed kevin absolutely agreed it's hard to imagine a child would come up with the idea of competing in one of these pageants on their own even if they did if my five-year-old daughter came up to me and said i'd like to try on bathing suits and evening wear and have my physical appearance judged by grown adults the answer would be hell no now go to your room while i disconnect the internet and dig a moat <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is the thing where if, you, like, if your kid came to you and said this, you'd be like, oh, I mean, look, I, I just had a whole spiel about how I want my kids to live their own dreams rather than my, you know, unrealized dreams, whatever. I, I don't have that many unrealized dreams. I'm quite happy with what I do, where I am, etc. But also, there's some things where it's like, no, 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 no. You can't live that dream. It might not be me forcing my dream onto you, but I'm going to force that dream into not being allowed or possible. And let's start digging the moat. I know there are parts of this country, predominantly in the South, where beauty pageants are a much bigger thing culturally, and stuff like this is considered more normal. But I feel my response would be appropriate, maybe even an underreaction. <laughs> There's obviously still the possibility that while the pageants were Patsy's idea, that John Bonet really enjoyed them as a bonding experience with her mother, but it seems more likely that Patsy was pressuring her into them. Both her father and her oldest half-brother, John Andrew Ramsey, described her as a tomboy who liked running around outside and playing with her brother. While seemingly incongruous with the idea of a beauty queen, people can like two different things, so this is hardly damning. The much stronger evidence comes from John Bonet herself. One of Patsy's friends from Atlanta and her daughter, who was the same age as Burke, came to visit. There was a special display case made to house John Bonet's pageant trophies, and when the daughter asked about them, John Bonet replied, They're not really mine, they're my mum's trophies. Oh, that is so f***ed up. Stop living vicariously through your child. Whether she enjoyed the pageants or not, she was good at winning them. John Bonet had won seven beauty pageants by the time she was six years old. 
so weird and creepy. So weird and creepy. Every parent has a favorite child, and it seems clear from evidence like home videos that John Bonet was the favorite child of Patsy. Does everyone have a favorite child? I have two kids. I mean, one's still a baby. They're like eight months old, so they haven't really got their little personality going yet. I mean, other than just being so sweet, always smiling. It's so nice. Um, but do people really have favorite children? <laughs> Is that... <laughs> I don't know, Kevin. Hope your kids don't hear this. <laughs> also, I have an ongoing joke with my wife that one of our kids is the favorite, and I'm always like, <laughs> whenever I go, it's like, yeah, I love you guys, especially that one. <laughs> and my wife's like, don't play favorites. And I'm, it, it's a joke, but at some point I've got to stop the joke because the kids will be able to understand and they might not understand that it's a joke and that'll give them uh, issues, which is. As we've discussed from Casual Kimless, it's bad to give your children issues. Maybe it was because she could relive her dreams of pageant glory through her daughter, or maybe it was because Burke was, well, in the immortal words of Hank Hill, that a boy ain't right, but we'll get to him later. Oh my. <laughs> oh my, my, my. The original timeline. This is the original sequence of events as given by the family, with some details added from the officers on the scene. On Christmas morning, 1996, the Ramsey family woke up to open their Christmas presents. John Bonet and Patsy both got bicycles, and John Bonet also got a large dollhouse and one of those custom dolls that's supposed to look like you, but she didn't think it looked like her at all. Yeah, no one does. This is the thing. Like whenever someone says like this person looks like you, you're always like, no, they don't. What are you talking about? It's because you're extremely familiar with how you look, and also you've got like. People see you differently to how you see yourselves because you look at yourself and you form all these issues and you think all these small things about you uh, are big that no one else no one else notices. Like, for example, my baldness. No one else notices that. But And so, you know, whenever someone says you... Like, people do this all the time to me. People are like, Simon, this dude looks just like you. I'm like, that guy looks nothing like me other than the fact that he's bald, has a beard, and wears glasses. Very rarely do I see someone sharing one of these pictures. It's like, wait, when was I... Oh, that's not me. Very, very rarely. My sister got one of those dolls for Christmas one year, and it looked exactly like her, and it was so creepy that she's still terrified of it. Burke's main Christmas present included an electric toy train and a Nintendo 64. This family had money. Holy sh**. <laughs> They're just showering them with epic gifts. Bicycle and a Nintendo 64 and an electric toy train? Jesus. The family had tons of money, so they surely got plenty of other small presents, one of which we'll mention later, but these were their marquee gifts. It was an abnormally warm December, with temperatures in the mid-50s the whole week of Christmas. Kevin, I've got no idea what that means. Why is that in Celsius? Hey Siri, what is 50 degrees Fahrenheit in Celsius? 10 degrees Celsius for winter? That's really nice. It's only 16 degrees Celsius right now, and it's the last day of May. Gives you a very good idea of quite how far ahead I am with recording these Casual Criminalist episodes. It's probably winter by the time you're hearing this. I am so far ahead, it's wonderful. Except for the fact I want to be like, we solved the John Benet Ramsey case, and be like, oh god damn it, I've got to record the whole bloody episode again. There had been about half a foot of snow nine days earlier, but with the temperatures above freezing every day since then, much of it had melted. John Benet immediately wanted to ride around on her new bike, so John cleared a little of the snow that remained off of the lawn so that she could take her new present for a spin before getting ready for the party. The family spent the rest of the day at a Christmas party at a friend's house. It was some boring, rich person party, so what probably happened isn't very important or interesting. All that really matters is that John Bonet was eating crab legs and no pineapple was served at the party. Oh, is she allergic to pineapple? Is that how they kill her? 
Uh-oh, uh-oh. When they left that night, JonBenet was exhausted and fell asleep in the car. At home, John carried the sleeping girl to her bedroom and put her on the bed in clothes from the party. The family had to be up early the next morning to take John's private plane to Michigan to see his other children, so they all went to sleep. Holy sh**. Um, yeah, this went from, like, normal rich people to, like, real rich people the next morning, Patsy woke up at 5.30 a.m. She went downstairs to make some coffee and found a two-and-a-half-page handwritten ransom note laid out on the stairs. We'll talk about exactly what the note said later, because there's quite a lot there. She only read the first three sentences up to the point where the note mentioned having their daughter. She understandably started freaking out, and then she ran to JonBenet's room to check on her. She wasn't there. She went to check on her. She went to see if she was actually there, more like, because, oh my god, she's been kidnapped. She wasn't there, so at 5.52 a.m., she called 911 to report the kidnapping. We'll talk about that call later, because, well, it's a whole thing. Oh my god, this episode is good. How, how long? We're already 20 minutes into this? This is going to be a long episode, guys. I don't know, judging by how far my little scrolling thing has moved down the page, are we going to be here for three hours, Kevin? Oh my god. Patsy then immediately called her friends and invited them over. Even without having read the note, you'd think that she'd know that both calling the police and calling everyone else she knows is generally against the rules in these situations, but whatever. Wait, why is it against the rules? Your kid's been kidnapped. Sh Are you supposed to be quiet? I didn't know that. Oh my god, if my kid got kidnapped, I'd be calling like people and being like, Oh my god, my kid got kidnapped, can you help? And they'd be like, what do you mean, how can I help? <laughs> I mean, they'd probably be like, yes, how can I help? And you'd be like, I don't know. <laughs> Have you called the police? Yes, of course. If you got a kidnap note and they said don't call the police, would you call the police? I guess I'd definitely call the police. Because you'd be like, well, they're not going to know if I called the police. I'll just go in the back room and call the police. And then be like, yo, police, you can't tell anyone because they told me not to call the police. And the police would be like, okay, well, listen, we've got some expertise on this. And I'll be like, good. Because you know who doesn't? Me. Or would I just maybe a private investigator or someone? I don't know. I'd, on I'd honestly just pay. <laughs> I mean, I'd never pay. Don't kidnap my children. Don't negotiate with terrorists. John woke up from all the commotion and read the full ransom note. John, wait, 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 wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on. The wife calls her, calls 911, calls her friends, and tells everyone their daughter's been kidnapped, but she doesn't bother to wake her husband. What the fuck's going on? <laughs> John woke up from all the commotion and read the full ransom note. Burke has said through the entire ordeal. Oh, he's the older brother, right? Would that even be possible with his mother making a hysterical 911 call and all the guests showing up shortly after? Well, they lived in a five-bed, eight-bath, 11,376-square-foot home, so yeah, probably. Oh my god, that's like a thousand square meters. <laughs> that is a mansion. I know American homes are generally a lot bigger than European homes, but that is a mansion. How Only five bedrooms? What the f*** is in the rest of the house? Three minutes after the 911 call, two officers arrived on the scene. They took the ransom note at face value and believed that it was a kidnapping. They cordoned off John Bennett's room and searched the rest of the home for signs of a break-in. While the Ramsey house did have an alarm system, it was rarely ever turned on and the doors weren't always all locked, although John insisted that he had made sure they were all locked the night before. The police made their way to the basement to search for a point of ingress. I don't understand. What's the Are you serious? You're not locking your doors properly at night? They're like, oh, we don't always lock the doors. We don't always turn on the alarm. I'm like, yo... How about at night, you lock the doors and you turn on the f***ing alarm in case someone breaks into your house in the night? What are you doing? 
At one point, the door to Burke's room was opened and an officer shone his flashlight inside, but Burke remained in bed. One of the officers came to a door in the basement that was secured by a wooden latch. Since he was looking for how the kidnapper would have gotten in or out, the closed latch indicated that this door would not have been used, so he went back upstairs without bothering to open it. Boulder was an extremely safe place to live. Some sources cited as a small, sort of small town where everybody knew everyone else. This is completely inaccurate, as there's a population of nearly 100,000 people. But I guess if you've only lived somewhere like New York City or Los Angeles, you might think that 100,000 people is small and reported as such. I've lived in similar-sized towns, maybe a bit bigger than that. But that's a proper town. That is a proper town. You don't know everyone. You, it, it's why it's that you might bump into people you know if you're in your local neighborhood of that town. Regardless, the police department was not prepared to handle the case. The city averaged one murder per year, and in 1996, John Bennett Ramsey was the only murder. I'm not going to say they were incompetent, though many like to, but they certainly lacked experience in murder investigations. They also appeared to be short-staffed, possibly because it was the day after Christmas, and everyone was taking time off. Yeah, I mean, this is fine. That's not incompetence. That's just like, well, yeah, we can't expect like random small town to have like the best equipment for dealing with high-profile cases. That's why... I don't know, in movies, it's like the FBI come in and they're like, this is my crime scene. And they're like, okay, <laughs> the guys with the big coats arrived. Friends, advocates, and the family minister all arrived on the scene to show support for the family and contaminate the entire crime scene. Well, John made preparations for the ransom payments. They were greeted by Patsy in full makeup and wearing the same dress that she had on the night before. Detective Linda Rans arrived at the scene at 8 a.m. in preparation for a call from the kidnappers. The ransom note said they would call between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. to arrange the pickup. She was the only detective at the scene. It was noted for much of the morning that John and Patsy remained in different rooms, not interacting with each other. Patsy was mostly entertaining the guests, while John remained alone in the kitchen doing things like going through the mail and allegedly joking with some of the police officers. People respond to stress, trauma, and grief in different ways, so while this behavior may seem unusual to many of us, it's not alone proof of anything. Yeah, I don't... Even though I do think something suspicious is going on, because of course I do, because... It's probably why we're making this video, isn't it? We already discussed how there are so many theories. But people deal with grief in totally different ways, and I think this is okay. I think, like, yeah, you don't know how you deal with a situation like that, so I, I really agree this. Yeah, it might be weird and callous, but it's also like, well, his kid's been kidnapped, hasn't he? He could be, he could just be losing his mind. As time passed, so too did the 10 a.m. deadline, but not a word was spoken by anyone. It was as if the Ramses weren't concerned with the deadline because they were never expecting a call. By 10.30, Linda was the only police officer in the Ramsey house. She received a lot of criticism from people for her handling of the crime scene, but I think that's an unfair characterization of events. She was the only officer in a house full of people that was not suspected of being a crime scene other than John Benet's room. I honestly think that she did her best in that situation. Should the whole house have been a crime scene? Yes. Should all of the non-family have been immediately thrown out on their asses? Also, yes. Did Linda repeatedly call for backup, yet remain the only officer of the house for hours on end because everyone else was in a meeting? Yes. And that's why I find it hard to criticize her for what happened next. For 90 minutes, John disappeared. When he returned, he seemed overly agitated. In the hopes of both calming him down and getting him out of her hair, since she had more than enough people to deal with on her own, at 1 p.m., Linda suggested that he and a family friend search the house from top to bottom to make sure nothing was amiss. This was intended just to be busy work, as she falsely believed that the house had already been properly searched by police officers that were there before her. Upon being given this instruction, John and his friends immediately went into the basement. John opened the latch that the officer had ignored and entered the dark wine cellar. Without even turning on the light, he knelt down and picked up the deceased body of his daughter. Oh my god. His friend screamed for an ambulance, and he removed the duct tape from her mouth 
and carried her upstairs. JonBenet's mouth had been covered in duct tape, her hands were tied above her head, and her body was covered in a white blanket. Around her neck was a deep strangulation wound caused by a homemade garrote still dug deep into her neck. When John reached the top of the basement stairs, Detective Linda ordered him to put the body down. The two of them then knelt down next to the girl, their faces inches apart. In Linda's words from a 1999 interview with ABC, quote, We had a non-verbal exchange that I will never forget, and he asked if she's dead, and I said yes, she's dead. And I told him to go back to the room and dial 911. And as we looked at each other, I remember tucking my gun right next to me and consciously counting, I've got 18 bullets, because I didn't know if we'd all be alive when people showed up. Oh my god, that is some crazy sh- <laughs> So she's immediately like, he killed her, he's guilty, and is he gonna go mental and kill all of us? John went to the other room and then returned with a blanket and asked if he could cover her up, but he didn't wait for an answer. Obviously, this shouldn't have been allowed, but Linda was alone in a house full of people, at least one of whom she was damn sure was a murderer. It's hard to fault her for trying to disallow this, just as it would be hard to fault an innocent John for wanting to cover up his daughter in a house full of people. So, that is the original timeline that was presented, but again, many aspects of this are up for debate, either because of potentially contradictory evidence or inconsistent statements to the police or to the press. And speaking of evidence, it's high time that we start to examine some. The Ransom Note The ransom note is utterly ridiculous. Like two men falling from an air vent is the sort of thing that could be best explained by William Defoe's character from Boondock Saints. Uh-oh, I've never seen Boondock Saints. I feel oh, have I seen Boondock Saints? I feel like I have seen that, but it was a really long time ago and I don't remember who William Defoe played or am familiar enough at all to get the reference. Never mind, let's just move on. Who leaves a two and a half page ransom note, especially a handwritten one? Ransom notes should be two to three sentences long and made from cut up magazines. Everybody knows that. Nothing in the note is credible at all, and it is clearly the result of someone who watched too many movies and was trying to sound like a big screen villain instead of a real life kidnapper. I could just say it's a fake ransom note and leave it at that, but there's so little actual evidence in this case, what with the entire crime scene being contaminated that won't suffice. The note plays a large role in all of the various theories about this case, so I want to make sure that you fully understand its contents when trying to decide which theory you subscribe to. Quote, Mr. Ramsey, it's a bit formal for a ransom note, but whatever. Listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. No, you're not. If you were from a small anything faction, you'd not identify it yourself as such. It's like the three X murders all over again. Uh, reference to a previous casual criminalist. Also, no foreign faction identifies themselves as foreign because to them they aren't foreign. They're Canadian or Armenian or whatever. Even when living abroad, people rarely personally identify as being foreign. It's an utterly bizarre opening that calls everything else immediately into question. Yeah, I live in a country where I wasn't born, and I don't describe myself as foreign. <laughs> I describe myself as British. <laughs> we respect your business. Uh, business is misspelt. Uh, sick, but it, not the country that it serves. On the note before the word respect, you can either see the word do or the letters don crossed out. This indicates that originally the author was going to say that they don't respect his business. While the change is peculiar, the need to show some sort of respect towards the person whose daughter you kidnapped is even weirder. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. Again, possession is misspelled. This is the second spelling mistake in as many sentences. The author seemed to be trying to establish the writer as foreign or 
poorly literate, something that is not helped by the length of the letter. The rest of the letter is also free of these mistakes, so they either forgot their plan or felt that they'd already established what they needed to and that no one would notice how glaringly out of place these lone errors were. Yeah, these errors feel fake. Like, someone who does, someone who knows the word faction knows how to spell business. <laughs> I also realized that that might be how I try and spell possession. <laughs> I'm looking at it right now for like a good 10 seconds. Just like, wait, how do you do? How do you actually spell possession if that's not right? And it doesn't look right. I know it's not right, but I also done it the correct way. <laughs> oh, it's embarrassing. <laughs> she is safe and unharmed. And if you want to see her 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. This is clearly a lie, since we now know she's dead, but it's also needlessly theatrical. You will withdraw $118,000 from your accounts. $100,000 will be in $100 bills, and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. The dude lives in a palace, and his company just posted earnings of a billion dollars for the year. I understand that the money's not all his unless he's extraordinarily corrupt, but if the author knows his name, he must have also got some idea of what he's worth. Even if they had no idea who the dude was and he was chosen at random, their house is f***ing enormous. Who would go through the trouble of kidnapping a child from someone that is clearly loaded for just $118,000? And what's with those notes about the denominations? It's utter nonsense. I mean, I feel like the denominations could be, okay, they want $100,000 in, like, big bills, so they can, you know, carry that easily and stash it away in the woods or whatever. And then the small bills is more like, you know, I don't know, money to pay it while you're doing your kidnapping or to escape because $100 bills, I imagine, are a hassle to get rid of, but $20 bills are super widely accepted. I mean, $100 bills are accepted everywhere, right? But I've not seen that many $100 bills, but 20s are like super normal. What is not nonsense is that John coincidentally had just received his Christmas bonus of $118,117.50. That is a remarkable coincidence. Also, John's Christmas bonus is very low for a man who... Was this... Is this his company? I think it's his company, right? He made a billion dollars? I mean, I don't know what that is profit-wise. They said earnings. Is that profit or is that revenue? I don't know. <laughs> not a business big brain. Uh, but that does seem like he should probably... He also lives in a fucking palace. That's not a lot of money to palace people. That is a very specific number that very few people would have known. Neither that foreign faction is very considerate, only wants to take his bonus rather than financially crippling him since they respect his business so much, or to make it seem that it was someone from his company that was aware of his bonus amounts. Make sure you bring an adequate size attaché to the bank. You mean I can't put that much money in my wallet? The word attaché, complete with the accents, the on the, the the thing on top of the E, is a bizarre choice. It could either be an attempt to make the person seem foreign or the work of a wealthy person that is so out of touch with the reality that they don't understand that most people don't commonly use words like attaché. <laughs> do rich people use the word attaché more, though? Like, do, do rich people have attaché bags? <laughs> okay. This also feels like a reference to the movie Ruthless People. In the film, a kidnapper gives instructions, opening with, listen very carefully, similar to this note. They also specify a make and model number for the briefcase to be used and instructions on the denominations of the bills. This is all unrealistic for an actual ransom scenario, despite what movies would have the author believe, but their fondness for cinema is going to become even more obvious later. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be well rested. <laughs> Why is it going to be exhausting? I mean, $100,000 is a lot of money. But in $100 bills, it's probably only like, I don't know, a stack 20 centimeters high, 15 centimeters, what, 10 inches? 10 inches, 8 inches, something like that? It's not a big stack of money. 
You're a kidnapper. Why the fuck do you care if they're well rested or not? Also, the note was left in the middle of the night while they were sleeping, so would they not already be well rested when they saw it? It's also very similar to a line from the film Dirty Harry. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money and hence say earlier crossed out delivery pickup of your daughter. The note indicates that they're somehow being monitored, but even if Patsy had not read the whole note before inviting the entire town over, John had read it before anyone arrived. You'd think that they'd be concerned that they violated the terms of the ransom note that alleged they were being monitored, but they were not. The author also crosses out the word delivery with regards to John Bonet and changes it to pickup. It's almost as if the author is having difficulty remembering which side of the note they're supposed to be on. That or they realized after writing it that no kidnapper would actually deliver their daughter, thus exposing themselves, then would just leave her somewhere to be picked up after they got the money. Oh my god, I have an early theory. I have an early theory. Have you guys just had that early theory as well? It just tweaked in my mind. The sun the son burke he's not right um what tweaked in my mind was the father is clearly super intelligent i mean just assuming he started these big companies and he's the head of something at some big he's not dumb and this feels like kids writing this feels like the thing as a kid would do to throw you off he put the uh, but i think the parent oh my god i i'm like fully crystallizing a theory in my brain already the son did it. The parents found out that he did it. The son wrote. The son did it. He wrote a ransom note to try and make it go away, and he put the body of the daughter in the basement. The parents found out. They know about it, but they don't want their son to go to prison because then they'll have no children because they got a dead daughter and a son in prison forever. So I think the parents are helping to cover it up. That's my theory so far. Let's see how we go. Everyone's probably already already that Simon. That's one of the big theories. <laughs> We all know this. Uh, I didn't know this. That, or they realized after writing it that no kidnapper would actually deliver their daughter, thus exposing themselves. They would just leave her somewhere to be picked up after they got the money. Any deviation on my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for a proper burial. If someone's child is kidnapped, that's incentive enough for them to pay the ransom. The threat of denying her remains is another baffling inclusion in this letter nobody was thinking i was gonna go to the police instead of paying because you know i'll roll the dice with my daughter's life but if she can't have a good christian burial well, i guess now i'm definitely gonna have to listen the quote continues the two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you so i advise you not to provoke them speaking to anyone about your situation such as police fbi etc will result in your daughter being beheaded holy shit this just feels like it does feel like a child's writing doesn't it or like a teenager He's like seen too many movies. Once again, the author is trying to indicate this is a group of people. The specific threat of beheading seems to be another attempt to legitimize them as a foreign faction, as America is not one of the countries known for its beheadings. <laughs> oh, God. It may also be a reference to the movie Nick of Time, in which the kidnapper threatens to cut a girl's head off. The much more important detail here is the initialism FBI is written with periods after each letter. This is extremely uncommon and even runs counter to the modern AP style guide. I didn't stick out as me as weird, but I guess that does make sense. You'd normally see it as all condensed. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scanned for electronic devices, and if any are found, she dies. Yeah. <laughs> All right. 
Once again, this is straight out of the movies. The repeated cadence of, if you do X, she dies, is directly from ruthless people, and the comment about killing her if they talk to a dog comes from Dirty Harry. The quote continues, You could try to deceive us, but be warned that we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow her instructions and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. Also, so they say don't tell anyone. The the wife's like, hey, party at my house. What are you up to? First of all, this person is clearly not familiar with anything besides Hollywood movie portrayals of law enforcement. But more importantly, you're saying there's a chance. Why on earth would you only give a 99% chance of killing John Bonet if they try to outsmart you? Maybe the increase from 99% to 100% in the following line sounded more theatrical to the author, but what ransom note is going to propose? We have your daughter, and we're almost positive our plan is going to work. <laughs> Someone with a lot of self-doubt. Uh, the quote continues, You and your family are under constant scrutiny, as well as the authorities. Ooh, it runs deep. Well, oops a daisy, you probably shouldn't have called so many people round. Yeah, what you do? What was that about? Also, this is 1996, there's no CCTV to hack into. Are you saying that you're parked outside watching? Can we come and say hi? Quote continues, Don't try to grow a brain, John. <laughs> Literally, this is a quote from the movie Speed. It's such a bizarre phrase that it's hard to imagine the author wouldn't realize someone would immediately notice that. Despite the formal introduction, it seems that the kidnappers are now on a first-name basis with John. Uh, the quote continues, You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good southern common sense of yours. It's up to you now, John. The use of the phrase fat cat is often cited as being out of place for a foreign faction, though I'm less sure of that. Regardless, despite being in Colorado, they seem to know that John was from the South originally. It seems unlikely they could know that detail about him and not understand that $118,000 was a drop in the bucket compared to what he had in the bank. Finally, the letter was signed, Victory SBTC. Needless to say, ransom notes generally don't include signatures in the way a formal letter would. It's kind of hard to anonymously claim a ransom note when you've signed your name on the evidence. No relevant organization with those initials has ever been identified, and any guesses as to the meaning are generally both baseless and ludicrous. While the initial officers on the scene took the ransom note at its face value, the first investigators to look at it immediately identified it as a red herring. I mean, just listen to that utter nonsense. The alleged kidnapper switched between using I and we, indicating they could not keep track of whether or not they were supposed to be a group of people. However, even if the message itself was meaningless, the note as a piece of evidence absolutely was not. No, of course not, because someone obviously left it, who probably murdered the... who probably murdered murdered John Bonet, and this was to the red herring to throw the police off. And they desperately underestimated the capabilities of the police. Or a small child who would read this and be like, that doesn't seem real, does it? Is that from Speed? <laughs> Not only was this a long handwritten note, the culprit didn't even bring the note with them. The paper was found to come from a notepad belonging to Patsy, and the pen used was a pen from inside the house. Remarkably, both items were returned to where they came from in the house. This is a possible sign of habitual behavior, whereas a kidnapper is unlikely to really give a shit about leaving the house in order. It's the sun, isn't it? I really feel it's the sun. I mean, they left a ransom note, so obviously uh, you would know somebody had been in the house. Did I mention why I think the motivation for the son is? It's obviously because they prefer the daughter. Like, the mum's so, like, infatuated and in love and doing all the beauty pageants and shit with the daughter that she's ignoring the son and the son's jealous, so uh, he gets a bit murdery. Holy shit. My theory so far.
The only fingerprints on the note belong to Patsy, John, and the police officers involved. This itself doesn't mean much, as an intruder could have worn gloves the entire time they were in the house. But it's still part of broader context. Because the note was known to have been written inside the house, the length is a pretty big deal. Police estimates it would have taken approximately 21 and a half minutes to write it all. Days later, the police would also find what was referred to as a practice ransom note. The practice note only contained the words Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey, but it was torn off the pad and thrown away, along with the page beneath it where some of the ink ran through the page. This implies that the original letter was going to be drafted addressing both parents before the author reconsidered and wrote it directly to John instead. Because whoever left the note was considerate enough to write so much, there's a very large sample to be used for handwriting analysis. <laughs> What are you doing? Handwriting a ransom note? Are you insane? Don't handwrite a ransom note! While expert testimony from handwriting analysts is generally allowed in court, it's still heavily criticized as being subjective and junk science. Subjective or not, the results of this analysis are rather interesting. Wait, is handwriting science, is that junk science? I feel like if I had two things that I'd written and someone put them side by side, they'd be like, yeah, it's the same person, isn't it? Or it's at least likely to be. You know, we don't have to lock it in. It's just one piece of evidence. If this was the what the crux of a case fell onto, obviously, it's not going to be enough, even if they were super identical. But if it's just one piece of evidence in building up a picture of guilt, this seems totally fine. In fact, I can see already we've got some handwriting analysis to look at here. Based on the comparisons of the ransom note and other writing samples, experts were able to rule out both John and Burke as the possible author. Oh, okay, there we go. Apparently, Burke didn't write this. They also ruled out anyone outside the family that was involved in the case. The only person that was not ruled out was Patsy. She was not labelled as a definitive match for the handwriting, but there were over 200 similarities found between the ransom note and her writing samples. Among them were affinity for exclamation points and her using periods and initialisms. Much more damning, though, were the letters themselves. Here's a particularly interesting example of some of the similarities. That is the same fucking person writing with a slightly thinner pen. I mean, come on. The same letters are joined up in the same places. The the O's a little different, but I just think that's the thickness of the pen. Oh, there's some differences. But it just looking at it quickly, it's the same. Patsy's sample is clearly written with a finer-tipped pen, so the shapes of the letters aren't going to be amazing matches here, although in many of the other examples they are. What is unusual is the grouping of letters in the words. In both examples, the letter E is linked to the letter L, and the next E is separate. The next group of four letters are all written linked into each other, with the final three letters being isolated. This is, I mean, come on. It's the same, it's the same writing. There are lots of examples of letters linked together by both Patsy's writing and the ransom note, in addition to the general shape of the letters, but this one really jumps out as being specific to her writing. I reiterate that Patsy's writing was not declared as a match and was simply not ruled out. But if she was not the author, it seems that the true author was familiar with Patsy's handwriting and was trying to make it appear as if she wrote it. The 911 call. I know that was a long section, Simon, so don't worry, we don't need to analyze every single word that was spoken to the 911 operator. Instead, think of it like jazz. We have to listen to the words that weren't said to the operator. Patsy called 911 at 5.52 a.m. When the operator picked up, Patsy immediately gave her address and said that they had a kidnapping. So far, so good, as we're all taught back then to immediately give your location and the nature of the problem if you call 911. Oh, you are? I didn't know that. <laughs> You're like, hello? Nine one one. We're like, what's up, uh, sir? Do you have an emergency? 
The operator calmly tried to get information, while Patsy sounded frantic. When asked about her daughter, Patsy says that she's six years old and blonde. At no point did she ever speak Jean Bonnet's name, which seems really odd, but in a genuine state of panic, it could be hard to organize your thoughts and what details are most important to offer to the police. The operator asked if the ransom note says who took Jean Bonnet. Patsy first says no, then I don't know, then mentions the note again before saying SBTC victory. The final bit is often mentioned as an inconsistency in her story, though I'm less convinced. She stated to police that she had only read the first two sentences of the ransom note before calling 911, but then answers who signed it. Yeah, because obviously if they're asking if the if you're on the phone with 91 and they're like, who wrote the letter? Obviously, you look to the bottom of the letter to see who signs the letter, even if it's a ransom note. And you'll see this and you'll be like, okay, it's signed by this person. This makes perfect sense, especially the I don't know bit at the top because she didn't know, then she looks, and then she does know. This is not an inconsistency. This seems totally fair. This could easily be explained by the fact that she was holding the note and simply looked at the very end for a signature. Yes, and it also explains the delay in her not knowing first of all. The common refutation of this idea is that she says the last two lines in the opposite order that they appear on the notes, which many take it to believe that she was reciting it from memory and got it backwards. No, no, no. I think she just says SBTC first because she's like, that's who she thinks signed it. And victory is like, you know, the sign off, like best regards. And then she reads it afterwards because she realizes that's a bit weird instead of like best regards. Yeah, right. That makes sense. I don't think this is an inconsistency. I'll counter that by saying that she read the SBTC and when unable to make sense of it, read the previous line as well, since it was only a single word. Yeah, or it was considered to be like a best regards. Whatever. Either way, not an inconsistency. I'm not proclaiming Patsy's innocence, I just find this argument to be extremely unconvincing. Of course, we're not saying there's not there's not enough evidence either way. The operator informed Patsy that an officer was on the way and took her name while Patsy went through what sounds like a bit of histrionics, repeating please and hurry over and over again. The operator repeats that someone is on the way and Patsy takes a deep breath, at which point she again says, hurry, 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 and hangs up the phone. Or so she thought. What followed is difficult to make out. The audio has been run through noise cancellation filters and amplified to try and make it clearer. Even from the raw audio, Patsy can clearly be heard saying something in the background, although it's hard to decipher what. Oh my god, are we going to have a Robert Durst moment here? Where it's like accidentally speaking into a hot mic that you murdered someone. There appears to be three different voices. Patsy, an adult male, and a child. Since no one else was supposed to be in the house, and indeed no one was there when the police arrived three minutes later, it stands to reason that the other two voices heard are John and Burke, assuming what's heard really is voices. There's some dispute that it may be artifacts from the editing process performed on the recording, as what we can hear appears to be an analog tape and may even be a copy of a copy. It's also important to remember the background noise can come from both sides of the call, so it may be background noise from the 911 call center. Even if we assume they are voices, the exact dialogue is still difficult to make out. There are a couple of different proposals as to what's being said. If you want to try and listen for yourself, I recommend pausing this video, trying to find the audio without subtitles to listen first, as once you know what's allegedly there, you'll hear it every time, whether it's clear or not. Here's a transcript of what is believed to be said after Patsy put down the phone, thinking it was hung up. John, we're not talking to you. Patsy, what did you do? What did you do? Or what did you do? Help me, Jesus. 
wow it's crazy how this is so unreliable of, as evidence it's like those songs where people say there are like demonic messages when you play it backwards and you'll someone will say it says this you'll be like oh my god it totally says this and then it'll be like actually it says this and you'll be like oh my god it says that too that's a different recording it's not it's just we absolutely apply what we hear to it which is crazy burke what did you find or are they going to arrest me it's at this point that the 911 call actually disconnects. One other quick thing about this phone call. At the very beginning of the call, the first thing Patsy says is, We need an police. Especially with the pause in her sentence, it sounds a lot like she was about to say, We need an ambulance for John Bonet before she remembered it was supposed to be a kidnapping. Is it possible she was saying she needed an ambulance on instinct because that's normally what you call 911 for? Sure, anything's possible in this case. That's why it's still unsolved. The only thing that seems like it shouldn't be possible is the one thing we know for a fact. The brutal way in which John Bonet was murdered. The Autopsy of John Bonet I know, I know, Simon. CSI, not sore. Don't worry, I won't make you look at the photos. When John Bonet was brought up in the basement, there was a deep ligature mark around her neck with the cord from the garrote still attached. Her strangulation was the official cause of death, but it was not her only injury. Though there appeared to be no sign of it by looking at her, John Bonet had also suffered an 8-inch long skull fracture as the result of a severe blunt force trauma. That's approximately the length of her entire head. The initial report believed that the skull fracture took place roughly one and a half to two hours before she was strangled to death, though it would have been fatal if left untreated. Other evidence suggests the fracture may have occurred after she was already dead. Scratch marks on her neck indicate that she may have been struggling to loosen the garrote around her neck as she suffocated, and DNA was found under her fingernails years later. Jomonet was wearing a white, long-sleeved shirt with a silver star embroidered on it, a pair of long johns and panties. The long johns and panties were both stained with blood and urine. Next to her body was a Barbie nightgown, which had blood on it. There was evidence of vaginal injury and chronic inflammation that could have been indicative of long-term abuse, though such abuse is not established fact, and it was a matter of contention among medical professionals. There wasn't anything to indicate penile insertion, but some other form of sexual abuse was definitely a possibility. There were no semen found, but the pathologist recorded the vaginal area had been wiped with cloth. Two peculiar sets of injuries were two pairs of circular marks, one set on her neck and another one on her back. The injuries seemed to be of identical size, and both sets were the exact same distance apart. It was also noted that the ropes tied around Jean-Bonnet's wrists were loose and would not have been useful in actually binding her. It's also widely believed that she was tied up posthumously as part of the staging of a crime scene. The autopsy also noted that the last thing she had eaten within the last couple of hours before she died was pineapple. Um, okay... I'm glad that's over. Let's carry on. Today's episode is sponsored by PayPal Honey, the easiest way to save when shopping on your iPhone or computer. Fun fact, even before this ad read, I have had Honey installed on my, uh, I don't have it on my iPhone. Full transparency there. I didn't even know that was a thing. Now I do. <laughs> You're welcome, world. Um, I had it installed on my computer. I've had it on my computer for ages. And it is great because I should tell you what it is. That'd be a smart place to start. Basically, when you're shopping online, it's this tool that is in your browser. And then when you get to the checkout and you know there's that box and it's like, insert your promo code here. And you're like, oh, I don't have a promo code. And now I'm sad. Well, with honey. End that sadness because it automatically is just this thing at the top. It pops out and it's like, bruh, try this code. And you plug it in and it's like bingo and it reduces it and they'll try a bunch of different codes they like scour the web for the best ones and then they run them all through and they work out which is going to save you the most money so even if you have a code 
and it's got like a 10% discount. And then Honey will be like, bro, 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 try this one, it's 15%. And you'll be like, Honey, you legends. You say, I bought a shirt the other day and uh, I'm just there. I didn't even think about it. The promo box comes up and it's like, boom, enters the code and it saves me 15%. I was, I was already happy with the price and now I'm just more happy. I think what I even bought was on sale and it gave me money off on an existing sale. And I was like, yes, please, honey. Thank you. So yeah, how does it work? I kind of covered that. You're shopping on your favorite sites. You click apply coupon. It searches. Boom. Prices drop. Easy. Personal endorsement did that as well. And did you know Honey doesn't work on desktop? It works on your iPhone too. Why? I, you said that right at the beginning of the thing, Honey. I didn't know it, but now I do. Just activate it on Safari in your phone and save on the go. I will do that once I am done here, okay? So look, if you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this show. Brilliant stuff. I'd never recommend anything I don't use. That's true. I've been using this for a long time, even before I got paid to use it, which is nice. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com casual. That's joinhoney.com casual. And now back to today's show. The DNA Evidence There were a few samples of DNA taken from JonBenet Ramsey. There were samples found on the other side of her long johns and panties. These were very small samples and for years could not be tested. There was also the DNA found under her fingernails, as well as some DNA found on the garrote. It's extremely important to note that in all of these instances, the DNA found was touch DNA. There was no foreign blood, saliva, urine, or semen found. Touch DNA is just DNA from shed skin cells, and it's an extremely tricky thing. It is very easily transferred from one person or surface to another, and it's very difficult to rely on as there are too many innocent explanations for the appearance of touch DNA regardless of where it is found. Despite the potentially useless nature of this kind of DNA, when advancements were made and these samples were able to be tested, it was discovered that the DNA belonged to a person known as unidentified male. The DNA was not a match for anyone in the Ramsey family, nor for anyone that was known to them, and it was not in the FBI database. Based on this information, in 2008, two years after Patsy died from ovarian cancer, Boulder District Attorney Mary Lucy publicly exonerated the Ramsey family. This was seen as extremely premature by many DNA experts, but it was also not legally binding in any way. Research has improved even more since then, and there are now two sets of different DNA besides John Bonet found in her panties. It was revealed that not only did the DNA found on the garrote and under her fingernails not match the DNA from her clothing, the samples from neither location matched each other wait what okay that's a bit weird isn't it but it's just is it just touch dna still so this could have been like from anywhere and anything and anyone but also who's the unidentified male that's even weirder because it's like why would anyone else be just touching this kid like that's weird who are they the story of the DNA isn't over, either. Coincidentally, the same day I pitched this episode to Simon, John announced that he wanted DNA evidence to be sent for private testing rather than being controlled by the Boulder Police Department. Whether he's guilty or innocent, further testing is a no-lose situation to him. If he's innocent, of course he wants to do anything to find his daughter's killer, no matter how futile it may seem. If guilty, he knows that identifying the DNA can point suspicion elsewhere, and if somehow any of it was identified to him, well, so what? It's all touch DNA and they live together, so there's endless non-suspicious reasons his DNA could have wound up on her clothes or household items. Remaining Evidence just a few loose ends to tie up here before we tackle the different theories. I've already been speculating on my theories, although now with the DNA and stuff, it seems less and less likely that it's the sun, although I still think that's a strong possibility. Also, big question, who the fuck's unidentified male? 
First is the garrote. The garrote was fashioned using nylon rope and one of Patsy's paintbrushes. The paintbrush was broken into three pieces. The middle third was used for the garrote. The portion with the bristles was placed in the back in the tray in the cellar with their other paintbrushes, and the third piece was never found. The nylon rope used for the garrote was the same used to tie up John Bonnet. We already mentioned that her bindings were too loose to be effective, but this is also taken by psychologists as a sign that whoever did this to stage the scene was someone that cared about John Bonnet. A random attacker would just quickly tie knots without any regards for the well-being of the victim. Speaking of the knots, there were three different knots used. There is disagreement on how complex these different knots were and who would be able to tie them. It's believed that both John and Patsy would know how to tie various knots because they owned at least one boat. Of course they did, fucking rich people. <laughs> and they loved sailing. <laughs> it's like, this dude, this isn't so regular rich people. This is, the guy has his own plane and his own boat. This is proper rich people shit. 180,000 is no money to them. He has his own plane, for God's sake. John would also have certainly learned various knots while in the Navy and may have even learned how to make a garrote during hand-to-hand -hand training as it is a simple and effective weapon that can be made quickly with materials a person might have on hand. There is speculation that Burke may have been able to tie knots as well because it was mentioned he was in the Scouts, usually falsely reported as the Boy Scouts. At nine years old, he would have only been a Cub Scout, which is more arts and craft than actual survival skills. What they learned, of course, would be up to the parents in charge, but my personal opinion, based on my experience as a scout is that at his age he would probably have known how to tie a square knot but not the two others not only were the two other knots probably too sophisticated but teaching slip knots is generally avoided at such a young age as they would serve little if any use but could prove extremely dangerous the duct tape that had been covering john bonnet's mouth also appeared to have been placed there after her death there were no signs on the tape that it had been struggled against in any way which would certainly be present if she were alive and unable to breathe. As for where the duct tape and the nylon came from, well, that's an interesting question. There was no roll of duct tape anywhere in the house, nor any source for the nylon rope. Some people speculate that they could have been purchased at a nearby store and then discarded in a neighbor's trash can. While they were able to tie a purchase back to that store, only the prices were listed and not the items. Both the tape and the rope would have cost $1.99 each, and Patsy had purchased two items costing $1.99 each a week prior to the murder. Uh-oh. <laughs> I mean, that is, again... All of this is just mega circumstantial, but it's always one of those things where all of this mega circumstantial stuff adds up and you're like, oh my god. It's just that the likeliness just becomes so high. There are two obvious issues with this scenario. The first is that purchasing them a week earlier indicates a level of premeditation that doesn't seem to make sense if any of the Ramses were involved. The other problem is that I'm sure half the items in the store cost $1.99. The one final piece of material evidence for this case is the broken window in the basement. Though it was somehow missed during the initial sweep of the basement, there was a window with a broken pane. Curiously, John volunteered the fact that he had broken the window months earlier when he'd locked himself out of the house, and it was never fixed because he assumed Patsy would call someone to have it taken care of. The window appeared to be covered in cobwebs and had not been disturbed, but it was later shown that it might technically be possible to have entered the house utilizing the broken window without disturbing the cobwebs. There was also a large Samsonite suitcase pushed flush against the wall underneath the window that could have been used as a stool to help an intruder escape back out the window. The Ramsey family insisted that this suitcase was out of place I would never have been left there normally. I'm like leaning away from the Ramsey family. I know there's a lot of stuff that kind of points towards them and their behavior is really super weird but also there's a lot of stuff that implies there's a third party here right especially that unidentified male can we get like ancestry dna on one of those guys isn't that how we caught the golden state killer can't we like find out who his relatives are or some shit like that <laughs> it's 
just feels like such a massive invasion of privacy. But seeing as this girl murdered a six-year-old, how about we massively invade his fucking privacy? Huh? Huh? Not bad. The Early Investigation The Ramseys lawyered up immediately. That's fine. Even if you're innocent, never say a damn word without a lawyer present. What is curious to most is that they had separate lawyers. I guess this is actually recommended rather than being suspicious as is normally portrayed, but most of us would be lucky to afford one lawyer, so the luxury of having separate lawyers would never come up as an option. Also, most of us probably aren't worried that both we and our spouse are going to be murder suspects, so I guess that's another reason that this would be unfamiliar to us. Yeah. Yeah, no, being a murder suspect would be really stressful. Much to the dismay of police, they flew back to Atlanta. From Atlanta, a week after the murder, they conducted their first TV interview. This also annoyed the police, as they'd not been cooperating with requests for official interrogations. There's a lot of analysis of this interview, though I don't find much of the dialogue to be terribly substantive. The only particularly interesting comment is that John says, We will find you. I have that as a sole mission for the rest of my life. This statement holds the implication that he does not expect to actually find a killer. It could just be a poor choice of words. Oh, because he says it's the sole mission for the rest of my life. Um, this is just a weird choice of this is just a bad choice of words. I was like, I read down, I'm like, okay, so he's gonna hunt this person down. He's gonna get that Liam Neeson shit going on. And this guy's got a plane and a boat and he lives in the palace. This is a dude who can afford, like, to just keep paying people to dig into evidence and hunt someone down and then just have them taken care of and not get caught because he's not hiring some like dime store hitman i get the feeling this is the sort of dude who would he'd get it done properly (laughs) oh my god rich people shit it could just be a poor choice of words but i promise you the rest of the critiquing of word choice is far more nitpicky than this oh my god here we go the bigger takeaway from this interview is their demeanor and nonverbal communication. First of all, Patsy allegedly appears to be on something. Her daughter was murdered and became international news story overnight, and now she's doing a TV interview. Even without the pressure of the interview, if she needed to pop some Xanax to get through such an emotionally devastating time, I don't think anyone's going to fault her for that. More importantly, her displays of grief and emotion, especially when she begins crying and needs to compose herself, seem genuine as is the opinion of many experts. On the other hand, John's emotions are analyzed as being fake or deceptive. There are certainly reasons for this besides guilt. There's a certain level of sociopathy that's generally required to becoming president and CEO of a billion-dollar company, so he could be innocent and just trying to fake or what seems like appropriate emotions. Alternatively, this was his second daughter to die in four years. That level of trauma could leave a person completely emotionally dead inside, or he could just be guilty as hell while nothing's off the table. When the Ramses finally agreed to talk to police, four months after the murder, it was going to take some concessions on the part of the police department. Most importantly, and most bewilderingly, the Ramses were to be provided with copies of the initial statements that they'd made when talking to the police beforehand. That's basically unheard of. The only logical reason a person would want those statements, yeah. So to keep the story straight, right? So you can look at it, see what you see what you said and then make sure that you say the same thing. The only reason someone wants these statements is to ensure that they get their story straight, yes, and that is not something the police want to actively facilitate if that story could be a lie. Even if they're not even sure, why would you do it? The whole You want to catch them out and then question them on it, and even if they're innocent, it'll give you a thread to pull out, and then you'll find they're innocent, or maybe you'll find they're guilty. 
There was already evidence of the Ramses changing their story as well, not to mention their story not lining up with the facts. One notable change was when the police first arrived. Patsy said that she came downstairs, found the ransom note, and then ran upstairs to see if John Bonnet was in her room. The story quickly changed to her saying that she saw John Bonnet was not in her room, ran downstairs, and then found the ransom note. That is a big difference. Even if she already knew John Bonnet was dead, this doesn't make any sense from a tactical standpoint, as the order of these two things doesn't really matter. What makes even less sense is to believe someone would forget the order those two things happened in. I know we love to talk about how memory is shit, and it is. If you saw someone eating a bowl of cereal, they probably couldn't tell you whether they grabbed the cereal or the bowl from the cabinets first, even though it happened minutes earlier, but this scenario... It's a little bit different. Our brains are wired to remember trauma as a survival tool. It has become markedly less important the more advanced society gets, but our brains haven't yet adapted to that. You can probably remember every truly terrifying or embarrassing thing that has ever happened to you throughout your life with unnecessary detail. Those memories randomly into your brain far more often than you'd like, yes! With something as powerfully traumatic as this would be, you would absolutely remember whether your daughter was missing and then you found a ransom note, or you found a ransom note and then found out your daughter was really missing. You might disagree, and you may even be thinking something along the lines of her trying to repress the memories, but there's a lot of debate over whether repressed memories even exist or not. I'm standing my ground that she couldn't possibly forget the order of those two things, but like I said, nearly every single detail of this case is heavily contested. Yeah, and I, I I think it's unlikely, but I wouldn't say it's impossible for those things. For the memory, it, it can get mixed up. That does seem like a big thing to mix up, though, doesn't it? But now the time has finally come. We have enough relevant details to finally examine the four main theories while understanding why none of them fit the facts of the case perfectly enough. John did it. The Ramses arrived home after their party. Despite his claim of carrying the sleeping Jean Bonnet directly to her bed, it was not Jean Bonnet but rather Patsy that was exhausted and immediately went to bed, not bothering to wash off her makeup or change out of her clothes from the party. John gave the kids a late night snack, some pineapple, and then sent them both to their rooms. One of the big problems for what would happen next is that there's no apparent motive. If we accept the chronic inflammation meant that John Bonnet was indeed being sexually abused and that her father was the perpetrator, we can speculate how things might have gone wrong in this particular instance. However, there were no signs of a struggle in John Bonnet's room, which makes it less likely that this was simply an incident of abuse gone wrong. Without her somehow fighting back, the motive for murder becomes murkier. Habitual abuser of his own daughter would likely prefer to keep her alive for continued abuse rather than suddenly and violently murdering her. Even if this began as abuse that went wrong, the skull fracture was so severe that it almost certainly could not have been something as simple as her slipping and banging her head on the floor. Were something like that actually enough for the head injury, it still doesn't explain the absolutely brutal act that led to her death by asphyxiation. It is genuinely bothersome that even were John a predator, the motivation not only for murder but such a brutal murder just doesn't make sense. This is bothersome because so many of the other details would make sense. Regardless of his motive, with John Bonnet now dead, John had to set about the staging of the scene. He wrote the ridiculous ransom note, trying to disguise the writing as that of his conveniently named wife, Patsy. 
The logic here would be that even if she was somehow suspected, she was innocent, so there'd be no evidence to tie her to the crime. Alternatively, he may have just wanted to make sure that the writing didn't look like his, and either nothing else mattered, or hers was the only handwriting he would imitate without it looking too unnatural. It didn't really matter, because in this scenario, there was never supposed to be a body, and thus the ransom note would appear more genuine. There was never supposed to be a body. You don't think the police are going to come to the house and look in the cellar? It's basically a remarkable coincidence that they didn't look in the wine cellar. What are you doing? This make this doesn't make a lot of sense. Though John had volunteered that he broke the window months earlier, he actually broke it that night. It was intended to be staged as the point of entry for the kidnappers, but he was running out of time and needed to get to bed before his wife woke up. He also couldn't risk crawling through the window and getting covered in dirt and cobwebs, then going back to bed in such a state. But John Bonnet's body, staged and hidden in the wine cellar, he returned to bed. All that was left was for Patsy to wake up, find the note, and come running to him. Then he'd send her and Burke to go stay somewhere safe for the day while he prepared for the ransom on his own, just like the note said. This would leave him all day to get rid of the body. After all, the note said very clearly not to call the police, and that the kidnappers would call tomorrow between 8 and 10 a.m., to arrange the exchange. He was giving himself an entire day of solitude to dispose of the body, withdraw the $118,000 that was definitely still liquid and not tied up investments, and creating a reasonable excuse for not going to the police that day. He was just following the kidnappers' instructions. It would have been a nearly perfect plan, except for two fatal flaws. The first is that if the person wakes up to find a note left overnight that references tomorrow in it, there was a reasonable chance they'll assume that tomorrow from the vantage point of the author is in fact today. The other flaw was that he didn't realize Patsy would want her fucking baby back and couldn't be bothered to read John's spec script for Netflix before calling the police. She also couldn't be bothered to even consult with him, which would have given him a chance to hash out the whole tomorrow debate and try and convince her not to call the cops. But it's all a bit weird because she didn't wake him, which is also like super suspicious in itself. And also this dude's just having a nap. He's just having a sleep. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's some things that indicate this, but I mean, this is this. There's so much reasonable doubt here. I, I, I don't even think the circumstantial evidence is enough to say this guy's guilty. As soon as Patsy called 911, John realized he was fucked. He had been trying to stage the kidnapping, and a big part of that was breaking the window and undoing the latch to provide a plausible point of entry. However, he had never crawled through it, so there were still undisturbed cobwebs, and he certainly couldn't do it now with the police on their way. This window was a dead giveaway that he had been staging, so now he had to attempt to undo the staging. He closed the window and made up the story about breaking it months earlier. It came quite a while later that he'd gone down to the basement alone at one point, and he said he'd closed the window and noticed the suitcase against the wall, also left there as part of the staging, but he didn't mention either of these things to the police at the time. If someone allegedly broke into your home and kidnapped your child and you just found a possible point of entry, do you not think that you might mention it to the police? Yes. Now, this is that is a bit more suspect, isn't it? What are you up to? John would later claim that the window being opened didn't strike him, as unusual at first, as they would leave the basement window open to let cold air in because the basement got too hot. There's a world where that makes sense, but it's not a world in which he broke the window four months earlier. A broken window is just as effective at letting in cold air as an open window. Also, wait, basements get too hot? Every basement I've ever known is cold. What's going on? Basements get too hot? Is that even a thing? The rest of the story played out pretty much the way we described earlier. At one point, while officers were in the house, John attempted to change his flight plans. They had intended to fly to Michigan to see the rest of the family that day, but instead he wanted to have his private plane take them to Atlanta. He was immediately informed by the police, um, 
why and also well no his alleged reasoning for this flight was that he had an important business meeting but that doesn't really make any sense if he had a business meeting that would have already been part of his plans he wouldn't need to change his flight to accommodate it well of course he might need to it's not like every business meeting is scheduled ahead of time he seems very busy and important it's entirely possible that someone just phones him up and be like mate we need you to come down to Orlando to sort out a crisis and he'll be like okay i'll be there business meetings crop up all the time it's also highly unlikely that he would suddenly agree to a previously unscheduled meeting that very day the same day his daughter was found murdered yes that's true but also remember he's a bit of a ceo he's a psycho uh, not a psycho a sociopath you know he's at that high level he's like yeah my daughter was murdered today but i understand there is a crisis in atlanta i need to go deal with it because he's you know a work dude <laughs> holy shit my man i don't find it i find it weird but not indicative of him murdering speculation is that his reason for flying to atlanta that day is because it was where all his lawyer friends lived and he absolutely needed one yeah but then going to fly and see your lawyer that day is also mad suspicious i think you'd realize that and probably not do it a lot of suspicious details suddenly make sense based on this theory but there are a few problems there are already a lot of problems the first is the lack of motive if he had been chronically abusing jean bonnet why would he suddenly turn to murder and why in such a brutal fashion the timing just hours before they were supposed to be flying to michigan and the sloppy nature make premeditation seem unlikely but what could have happened to trigger such a violent outburst all of a sudden even if he was some vicious sociopath the brutality and personal nature of the murder doesn't align with the care that was given to her body during the staging also there's no evidence of him being violent we have no history of violence nothing to indicate that uh, we have the very tenuous tie that because he's an important business person that he might be a sociopath which is uh, barely a tie at that barely the bindings on her hands were loose and she was wrapped in a blanket it would be one thing if she was just choked to death by hands but those actions indicate a level of affection for john bonnet that doesn't seem like it could exist in a person who would make an improvised weapon to strangle her with enough force to leave deep ligature marks around her neck there's also the matter of the evidence and in some cases the lack of evidence in order to believe that john or in fact any member of the ramsey family committed the murder we have to believe that they are simultaneously both the dumbest and most brilliant criminals ever the ransom note is idiotic to say the least and to leave the start of a first draft where it could be found is beyond sloppy it makes me think when you see something like this it's normally it's never it's never oh yeah they're smart and dumb it's always like well there's a smart one and there's a dumb one there's probably two people involved conversely there was no roll of duct tape or nylon rope anywhere in the house other than on john bonnet's body how could someone both be careful enough to remove such evidence without being seen while also doing so many blatantly stupid things it would be possible to argue that john simply ran out of time and didn't get to finish the staging but the ransom note is just such a huge deal the note casts so much suspicion on the family for being obviously bullshit and a person clever enough to properly stage the crime couldn't possibly be stupid enough to not realize how incriminating that note was one of the best explanations for how an intelligent person could leave that note is that perhaps the wealthy are so out of touch with reality they believe things in movies are like real life for ordinary people but that seems a bit unlikely yeah but also re people realize that real life uh, movies about kidnapping are not real life for most people like i don't think <laughs> rich people aren't that out of touch with reality this in like this sort of thing 
Even if it's true, John made his millions after college, and while hard to ascertain, it doesn't appear that he grew up extremely wealthy. Based on his father's career, he could have had an upper-middle-class upbringing, but there's no indication that he came disconnected from reality levels of wealth. In the book The Death of Innocence, written by the Ramsey family, John wrote, quote, The police theory has been, as far as I know, that either Patsy or I woke up in the middle of the night, struck John Benet in a violent rage, and then staged everything to make it look like a kidnapping. I've often told friends that if I were trying to stage this as the police can end i could have done a much more convincing job <laughs> yeah i mean it does sound a little bit like holy shit my dude but also he's fucking bang on isn't he it's like <laughs> this guy is unquestionably smart and successful would he do such a shit job <laughs> would he really it's unclear whether or not this book was the <laughs> inspiration for oj simpson's i did it if i did it sorry if with the small if patsy did it the family returned from their party, and Patsy was a bit stressed out. She had a whiny six-year-old that hadn't eaten much food and still had to get ready for a trip early the next morning. It was a trip she later admitted she didn't really want to take, which could increase her levels of stress. She prepared a bowl of pineapple for John Bonnet so that she could eat something and go to bed, and then stayed up to finish preparing for the flight the next morning. This is not confirmed, but there is heavy speculation that Jean Bonnet wet the bed that night based on some of the evidence, such as a plastic sheet on her bed, the urine stains on her clothes, and a diaper package hanging halfway out of a cabinet. It's believed that this incident, combined with all the other stress of the day, caused Patty to lash out in anger. While brutal murder is not normally the result, toileting issues are a major cause of parental rage. Also, there's a big difference between, like, I don't know, I've definitely had moments of rage where it's like, ah, stop! (laughs) But to smack my kids in the head enough to fracture their fucking skull is insane. Immediately, I find this motive suspect. I understand being overstressed and that a soiled child is hardly pleasant, but she's also six. Bedwetting is gonna happen sometimes, and it's not pleasant for the child involved either, so it's not like they did it on purpose or out of spite. Also, even if Jean Bonnet was having chronic bedwetting issues, as some have suggested, this seems like the least of Patty's concerns. And also, if it's chronic, you just get used to it. If it's like just one time, you're like, for fuck's sake. But if it's like, oh, okay, every night, there we go. Here we go. Here did we be ready to move away from nappies. <laughs> There is evidence and testimony that Burke had much larger toileting issues and was prone to smearing his feces around, particularly on John Bonnet's things. Oh my god, dude. That kid ain't right. While you could argue that prolonged stress of the situation could have finally gotten to Patsy, it seems less likely the younger child accidentally wetting her bed would be the one to finally receive the outburst. What are you doing smearing your feces around, my dude? Why? Regardless, according to this theory, there was some sort of outburst of anger from Patsy in John Bonnet's bathroom. She was shoved hard, and her head came into contact with a hard surface like the edge of a bathtub, inflicting the skull fracture. Shoving your kid? hard enough to give i don't think i've ever shoved my kid that seemed no like no come on come on i mean it's obviously a lot more forgivable than striking them with a bar but it's still like that's pretty intense like shoving them hard enough to give them a fucking skull fracture 
Joel Monet collapsed the ground and Patsy believed she was dead. Though a 911 call could have potentially saved her life at this point, Patsy both believed she was already dead and was afraid of the investigation into her that would follow. As a result, even though the injury had been an accident, she carried her daughter to the most remote part of the house in the hopes of staging a kidnapping gone wrong. Oh my god, you're digging a hole though. It's like that's one is accidental death and it's like yeah of course in the moment you'll be like holy shit i killed my kids and it's like yeah you did yeah you did but it's an accident and the courts are probably going to see that even though it's shitty parenting like shoving your kids but you didn't mean to kill them did you i don't know i feel like she'd know that i feel like she'd talked if you if that happened to you you'd call a lawyer wouldn't you you're rich you've got lawyers on you know in the speed dial just give them a ring and be like, oh, they'll, they'll, first of all, they'll be like, yo, I'm a corporate lawyer. Why are you going to, I've got a mate. Let me go give him a rule. And uh, then you'll figure it out. Patsy grabbed the closest thing she could find, one of her paintbrushes, and broke it off to use the handle for the garrote. She tightened it firmly around John Bonnet's neck. Oh my God, no! This is it, no! No, 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 no! and choked from her from behind to create the ligature marks. Though still alive, Jean Bonnet had suffered so much trauma to her head that she wouldn't wake up during her final moments. She continued her staging, writing the ransom note and laying it somewhere where she knew John would find it. However, time had gotten away from her, and she heard John moving around upstairs. Since she had not made it back to their bed yet, she had to act quickly. She grabbed the note, screamed, and dialed 911. John came downstairs, completely unaware of what had happened. After calling 911, Patsy immediately invited as many people over as she could, a deliberate act of contamination of the crime scene, which would hinder any potential investigation. I don't think that's... I mean, yeah, it's going to contaminate the crime scene, but also there's a body in the house. Inviting lots of people over just seems like an invitation for someone to find the body. I mean, it seems like a totally insane thing to do, but I think it's the sort of insane grief thing that someone might do. You can see why there's so many theories about this case. None of them seem to fit. They all seem to fit like... 20% and the 80% you're like no no it's not them it's not them I get the feeling I'm going to go through everyone I'm still super curious about the son and also the unnamed DNA person John immediately recognized the ransom note as having been written by his wife and remained distant from her all morning he was suspicious of her but did not yet know exactly what she had done later in the morning when he disappeared for 90 minutes he may have found a body when he returned he was shaken and appeared agitated having both discovered his daughter's body and understood that his wife was the murderer he now had to wrestle with the decision of turning in his wife or lying to defend her there was also the fear that he could fall under suspicion as well if his wife was revealed as the killer so he decided to remain silent why aren't you talking to your lawyers you can phone the lawyers they will tell you what to do they will tell you what to do when detective linda told him to search the house he immediately went to retrieve the body knowing that he couldn't stay composed trying to conceal the body though choosing to remain by his wife's side once again this theory explains a great number of things while failing to address others while it may not be the most convincing patsy would have had a clearer motive than john in this situation it may seem unlikely that patsy would fly off the handle because her young daughter wet the bed but we don't know her exact mental state would have been at the moment before she found out and the ongoing stress of alleged chronic bedwetting as well as burke's fecal adventures which could have finally worn her down also people just snap it's like i'll 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 snap at shit and they'll be like oh you know not like this but like i'll snap at stuff and it'll be like well it's not that and it's like i know it's not that it's like it's like when you're coming over from work and it's like oh you know something stupid like i want like a coke and there's no cokes in the fridge i'll be like oh fuck's sake why is the why is the coke just sitting by the fridge and it's not in the fridge i just want a cold coke and obviously i'm not upset about <laughs> the fact that probably me didn't put it in the fridge i'm just like 
it was you know it's the stress of other things that go on in life isn't it or is that just me am i the only i, I don't know i do have a bit of a temper sometimes and it's like oh, for fuck's sake just rain it in whistle <laughs> it's just a coke chill <laughs> unlike the bloody coke that was not chilled at all this theory also gives a better explanation of why patsy was still in her clothes from the night before and had her full makeup on she never went to sleep it's also more probable that the ransom note was written by patsy than by someone trying to disguise their handwriting as hers as the writing is just too similar but again not definitely hers it explains why in the 911 call it sounds like she starts to call for an ambulance but then stops and corrects herself instead asking for police there's one simple fact that throws a lot of doubt on this particular theory patsy called 911 ignoring how utterly ridiculous the contents of the ransom note were it is made abundantly clear throughout that they're absolutely not supposed to call the police if patsy was the author of the note and particularly if she intended john to find it it's puzzling that she would ignore her own instructions and immediately call the police maybe in the moment she heard john moving around upstairs the full gravity of what had happened and what a horrible note she'd written finally sank in yeah but then she never got rid of the note she still called the police no it's, it all falls apart doesn't it it's like oh wow yeah this all this all fits together and then you look at the other stuff and you're like oh it doesn't fit together at all maybe she realized that john would immediately recognize the handwriting as her own and she needed to take control of the situation she had no idea what john would do when he saw the note and knew that patsy was the one who wrote it so she couldn't risk being left alone with him she needed the police there as soon as possible in an attempt to force john onto her side this theory also doesn't explain the potential defense wounds on john bonnet's neck as well as some of the other details like i said none of the theories fits perfectly i'd say none of the theories even fit particularly well it's crazy also like i said there are many merry variations on the theory that either john or patsy did it and there are also theories that either both of them killed her or one of them did and the other tried to help cover it up that seems to me most likely involved the son somehow and i think we might have it but then who's the unidentified male and also i just struggle with the motive for this and it just it doesn't see or doesn't all fit does it we can't cover every iteration of every theory but at least you have a baseline understanding of the main premises of each of these theories there is one detail that hasn't been addressed by either of these theories however and that's burke burke who was allegedly asleep in bed throughout the entire ordeal burke who it was stated in later interviews by the family was woken up by patsy running into his room and shouting where's my baby before calling the police but allegedly he never left his room burke who was allegedly jealous enough of his sister to smear his feces onto a box of candy that she'd gotten for christmas burke did it it is frequently reported that burke was jealous of john bonnet and this would not be unexpected as she was rather clearly patsy's favorite and john was too busy working to be there very much it's also reported that he was frequently guilty of fecal smearing and other little presents such as garments sold with feces deposited in john bonnet's room or in one instance feces the size of a grapefruit left in john bonnet's bed according to one of the ramsey's housekeepers that's fucking weird dude it's also like super timely at the time of recording that uh johnny depp amber heard thing when they're like amber turd she took a shit in his bed who does that it's fucking weird this should not be discounted but the two are not necessarily related either there are at least eight different psychological disorders of which fecal smearing can be a symptom and burke is definitely a bit off so he is almost certainly suffering with at least one of those we're not going to guess his diagnosis but like i said that boy ain't right so 
This may have been a symptom of one such disorder rather than a symptom of his jealousy towards his sister. Now, before we jump into the theory of how or why Burke did it, there are two important crime scene photos that you need to look at. Okay, so I'm looking at two crime scene photos. One appears to be of a kitchen. Um, another one appears to be of a bowl of cereal on a table, maybe, with a glass next to it and some tissues and fruit. Um, they'll be on screen for our viewing audience, but if you're listening... Uh, if something needs to be described, I shall do it for you. The family returned home from their Christmas party. The parents went to bed, and either the kids stayed up to play with their toys or snuck back downstairs after being put to bed. Burke decided to make himself a snack, so he grabbed a can of cubed pineapple from the pantry to make his favorite snack. Pineapples in milk along with a glass of sweet tea. That sounds totally weird. I've never thought of having it. But at the same time, I'm like, sounds kind of good. Pineapple does something horrible to my mouth, though. Apparently, there's an enzyme which affects some people. And uh, when you chew the pineapple, it makes my mouth like all, you know, the, the skin gets all weird and it can peel off and stuff. It's lovely. Thanks for describing that, Simon. Some, apparently it's not super uncommon, but uh, I still love pineapple. So I'm just, I'm just willing to make the sacrifice. <laughs> also, if you cook it, it's totally fine. It is clear the Ramses committed at least one crime, and that's allowing their child to frequently have pineapples in milk. <laughs> I really want to try this. This is the children's equivalent of a cement mixer, Irish cream with lime juice, and if you don't understand why that'd be gross... Oh god, is the pineapple acid gonna make the milk curdle? Oh, that's a bit weird, dude. No. And if you don't understand why that'd be gross, be sure to let your friends watch you drink it so they can enjoy your reaction. It causes the, uh, the milk to curdle. You'll notice from the crime scene photo that a bowl of pineapples in milk is still mostly full. Maybe Burke's eyes were too big for his stomach and he couldn't finish it, so he left it there. For this theory, however, his snack was interrupted. Pineapple was a favorite food of John Bonnet's as well. Patsy's favorite child ran into the kitchen and stole a piece of pineapple out of the bowl, and then Burke murdered her. <laughs> I've just made that bit up, but is this where it's going to go? Oh my god. Burke was irate. He made the snack all by himself, and his sister thought she had the right to just come along and steal it. Burke, the pineapple was already cubed. It's not like you cut up some super tricky spiky pineapple, which is always a nightmare. <laughs> and uh, you just took cubed pineapple out of the cupboard. You're lazy. Not in his watch, since he was still also a child. He had both no sense of proportionate response and no sense of his own strength, especially relative to the size of John Bonnet. He grabbed the flashlight off the kitchen counter and brought it down on his sister's skull with all his might in retaliation for her snack swindling. Kids are stupid, though. They might not realize that what they can do to each other. Like, even my little baby kids, they don't understand. They'll be like, <laughs> just grabbing each other's eyes. And I'm like, guys, stop grabbing at your eyes. Why are you doing this? If you didn't realize it from the photo, this is not some plastic piece of shit flashlight. This is a maglite. Maglites are those powerful, heavy-duty flashlights with a lot of weight to them. There are also the flashlights that police officers carry with them and sometimes use in lieu of billy clubs. The blow from such a heavy object swung with such force immediately sent John Bonnet's body to the ground. Burke grabs a loose piece of train track from the other room to prod his sister. Testing showed that the metal connectors from an identical piece of train track left very similar marks to those on John Bonnet's neck and back, and the pairs of marks it left were almost exactly the same distance apart as the marks found on her. An obvious criticism would be that they should be exactly the same distance, not almost exactly, 
but it could be affected by the curvature of the body or the loose train tracks from the floor having been stepped on and being slightly bent. Yeah, I'll let that pass. Burke prodded his sister multiple times without her showing any signs of life. Perhaps he, realizing the severity of the attack, got his parents. Perhaps they came downstairs on their own. Well, how's the fucking garroting happen then? Jesus. One way or the other, the Ramses came downstairs and saw their daughter on the floor, and assuming she was dead, they sent Burke to his room and ordered him to stay inside no matter what. They knew that Burke had meant to kill John Bonet, and he was a child, so he wasn't going to go to jail. But they already knew that he was an odd kid, and after this incident, surely he would be taken away to some psychiatric facility. I mean, he was just a kid, and he didn't realize his own strength, so in reality, this probably wouldn't happen, but the Ramses had just lost one of their children, so they weren't prepared to lose the other. They spent the rest of the night trying to stage the kidnapping together. Yeah, also, maybe he needs some psychiatric care. He's smearing his feces all around and laying out a grapefruit-sized turd in his sister's bed. Maybe he needs to see somebody. Um, that's not really a maybe, to be honest, in my opinion. Patsy wrote the ransom note while John carried his daughter to the basement to simulate the kidnapping gone wrong. He wrapped the garrote around John Bennett's neck and tightened it, but suddenly everything went even more to shit. John Bonnet opened her eyes and began grabbing at the cord. What the hell was he supposed to do? He thought she was dead. If he knew she was alive, they could have just claimed the kids were roughhousing and fell. Now that she was alive, if they called 911, he would not only have to explain how she received such a massive skull fracture, but why Jean Bonnet was saying she woke up with a cord around her neck, a neck that now had ligature marks. Out of self-preservation, John had no choice but to finish the job. That's fucked up. I don't think he'd finish it. Like, no. No, no, no. It's like, in this case, it'd be like, oh, dude, I can't even imagine it. It's too grim to even imagine. But like, wait, why is he doing the ligature mark thing? To simulate a kidnapping gone wrong? Why would you need to garrote them? That makes no sense. When Patsy made the 911 call, Burke heard her screaming and couldn't help but disobey his parents' orders coming downstairs. It is this point that the conversation can allegedly be heard at the time of the phone call taking place. Had he hid in his room after striking his sister and the Ramses found John Bonet on their own, the exchange of what did you do followed by what did you find makes a whole ton of sense. Burke is rushed back to his room before the police arrive and is demanded that he stays there. This theory has by far the most believable motive of any of the Ramsey family members. Siblings fight all the time, and the idea that Burke could be angry enough over a piece of stolen pineapple to whack his sister with whatever happened to be around is pretty believable. Yeah, because it's not really motive, it's just accident. It's like roughhousing, isn't that what they said? Roughhousing? Is that the word? Yeah. The narrative can be constructed to fit most of the evidence pretty well, too. However, the more closely the narrative is crafted to the evidence, the more dubious it becomes. If we have to explain the potential defensive wounds on John Bonnet by John continuing to struggle after she woke up, that's a really tough pill to swallow. He was staging a murder, so as to not lose both of his children. But if she was still alive, why not save the favorite child and throw the weird one under the bus? Burke's motivation makes sense here, but the parents' motivation feels more like fiction than reality. It's not impossible they felt this was necessary instead of calling 911, and maybe they thought that they could exploit their wealth and status in the community to get people to believe the lie. Or maybe it was a snap decision that they immediately regretted, but it was too late to walk it back once that 911 call had been made. An interesting note about the flashlight, however, is that the family claimed it wasn't theirs. Of all the pieces of evidence to try and contest, why focus so heavily on the flashlight? If your answer is because it was the murder weapon, well, that only makes it stranger. Most people own a flashlight, so that's not weird or suspicious. Even if it was discovered to be the source of the skull fracture, well, so what? Yeah, it's very strange that it, make, it makes me feel like they knew something about it. God, there's such a mystery here, isn't there? 
it definitely makes it seem like they know something if they're just like that's not our flashlight it's like what well, no one brought up the flashlight what are you talking about <laughs> the ramses claimed that an intruder did this if an intruder made themselves at home and used their pen and paper to take their time writing a long ransom note what would stop them from using something from inside the house as a weapon denying that the maglite belonged to them so adamantly doesn't seem to make a lot of sense there's also the possibility that it really wasn't theirs the flashlight could have belonged to a police officer that left it there or it could have been left by an intruder yeah that's fair it could have just been left by one of the cops or it could just be like i don't know someone left a flashlight in your house and it only seems to be relevant now because of what went down whereas most of the time people are like where did that flashlight come from we didn't or torch we call these torches in the uk it's weird calling it a flashlight to me um like where did this flashlight come from and that's all you'd think you'd think well i don't remember buying that someone must have left it here and they never think about it again but in this case you're like well uh-oh and of course we need to talk more about the pineapple when burke was finally interviewed by the police as a child it was strange he's a little strange to begin with but this was different it's as if he had been heavily coached or he had picked up on his own from listening to his parents conversations that pineapple was a sign of guilt when interrogated about snacks that his sister enjoyed he goes out of his way only to mention non-pineapple snacks even when the question is restricted explicitly to fruit it's a very long pause before finally admitting maybe pineapple maybe he has also shown the crime scene photo that we mentioned previously the the fruit milk one and asked to describe it Berg said that it looked like their dining room table he confirmed the gingerbread house in the picture is one he and john bonnet had made together when he was asked what was in the bowl the one with the pineapple he looks at it for a long time and says oh and then goes on to describe the glass with the tea bag in it instead this is very suspicious but does not necessarily point to burke's guilt it does point to burke being trained up though doesn't it even if he was not involved he may have been coached not to mention the pineapple remember in the original timeline of events john bonnet fell asleep in the car and john carried her to bed immediately if she ate pineapple at the house that night it means the story was a lie the ramses would go on to contradict their story multiple times but pineapple remained a major point of contention as an early indicator that they were lying as well as providing the clearest motive for any of the family members to attack john bonnet while we're talking about burke there is another thing that needs to be mentioned and that's his interview with dr phil in 2016 burke is very heavily criticized for this interview and a lot of people say that he seems guilty as sin as a result but i have to disagree one of the key elements of the interview that people find unsettling is burke's smile he has this giant weird smile the entire interview i'd love to be able to ask jen to let you all see his big stupid grin but if we even use one frame from dr phil his copyright team will claim this video before it's finished uploading jokes on them it's already demonetized anyway <laughs> yeah uh famously so you don't 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 show the dr phil clip jen <laughs> but as for burke's smile fidgeting and other seemingly odd behavior my personal opinion is just to let it go to start he's probably neurodivergent in some way second it's extremely uncomfortable situation for someone to be in especially someone who's not used to doing interviews also his life basically ended at nine years old he was already just the brother of john bonnet before that with her clearly being the favorite child ever since the day she was murdered he has been seen as nothing but the brother of jean bonnet the killer of jean bonnet or the son of the killer of jean bonnet tabloid paparazzi made the family's life a media circus for years oh yeah 
This interview aired the same day as a CBS documentary flat out accused Burke of murder. Given all of this, I think we can give him a pass for being socially awkward with Dr. Phil. That doesn't absolve him of suspicion, it just means the interview is proof of nothing. Oh, and CBS settled Burke's $750 million defamation lawsuit over that movie for an undisclosed amount, but you can bet it was a lot. Holy shit. You can't just be out. I mean, I guess <laughs> CBS's lawyers signed up on this shit. Like, oh my god, you have to be so careful. Like, on this, I'm always like, maybe this, maybe that, I think that, I don't think this. It's like, you don't want to be accusing people who've not been convicted of murder of murder. That is some dangerous ass territory. So now we've covered all three members. I'm not going to say that all three scenarios are equally likely, but none of them is so ironclad that the other two don't cast enough reasonable doubt to prevent a conviction. But now it's time to look at the fourth theory. The theory that Boulder police allegedly weren't interested in pursuing. What if it really wasn't a family member that did this? An intruder did it. All three theories we've looked at so far share one major detail in common. John Minnett's skull was fractured by accident, making her appear dead, and then she was strangled to death with the garrote. This was a finding from the original autopsy. But what if it's wrong? What if she was choked first, and then the blow to the head didn't happen until she was already dead? Like I said, literally every detail in this case is contested, and this isn't just baseless speculation either. Surely that's something like an autopsy would just be like, well, we know what order it happens. Or have I just watched too much CSI? A skull fracture the size of John Monet's would likely be expected to be accompanied by major brain hemorrhaging, but no such hemorrhaging was reported in the autopsy. However, tiny hemorrhages were observed in her eyes, which is what you'd expect when a person is strangled while still alive. This would have seemed to indicate that by the time of the skull fracture, John Monet's heart had already stopped beating. This is an extremely important distinction because while it does not rule out a family member, it makes it dramatically less likely. An accidental blow to the head or even an intentional one that is more severe than intended followed by the staging of the crime would make sense for a family member. I mean, it's still fucking weird, but this whole case is weird, so it would be highly plausible. This seems like an enormously important detail that we didn't address yet. We always, uh, it's just been discussed as if bang on the head, then the garrotte. That is how it worked. But it does make more sense that, I mean, if the autopsy says this, then that's what the autopsy says. That's what it is. Garrots are normally used as a control device, particularly during sexual assaults. Dromine's hair was tangled in the knots of the garrotte, and the marks on her neck indicated that she was trying to fight back. While not impossible, this sort of murder without any accidental blow to their preceding it is extremely unlikely for a family member. According to Colorado Springs District Attorney Bob Russell, parents don't kill in that manner. They bash, they throw the child down, they hit them on the head. They do things of that nature. Then there's the matter of just how terrible a job the Ramses would have done had they been trying to stage the crime. Forget the physical staging of the crime for a moment, which was admittedly terrible, and look at the actions of the Ramses. First, we're going to have to assume that even if he struck John Bonet with the maglite, nine-year-old Burke was not capable of doing the rest by himself. That means if it was someone from the family, either Patsy or John had to be involved. If Patsy was involved, why would she call 911 before she had a chance to remove the body from the house, especially after writing in the note so many times not to call them at all. If John was involved, why would he insist to the police they had locked all the doors the night before? They were trying to determine a possible point of entry, so why not give them one? 
For the Ramses to have been involved, they would have had to have been extraordinarily stupid. John had a master's degree and was president and CEO of a tech company. Patsy had a degree in journalism and had dreamed of pursuing a career as a serious journalist before getting knocked up and becoming a millionaire homemaker. It seems almost impossible to believe that either of them could have been so profoundly stupid as to fuck up their staging on the most basic level. Yeah, as we've said multiple times throughout this, these people are not... They're not that stupid. They're not stupid. They're smart. They're really smart. It just doesn't seem very likely. I just don't think it's them. But then why is it, why why are there so many weird things flying around this? Or maybe they're brilliant and playing some sort of insane game of 4D chess that I can't even comprehend, but that seems even less likely. If the blow to their did not come first, both the method of killing and what would be a terrible attempt at staging point away from the Ramses as being suspects. That's all well and good and perhaps enough for reasonable doubt, but is there actually any evidence pointing towards it being someone else? For starters, there's the absurd ransom note again. Given the length of the note and how calm and collected the author appeared to be, some believe it likely that the note was written after the murder. A family member would have been extremely panicked, and even an experienced killer would be too pumped full of adrenaline to be capable of sitting still long enough to write something so verbose. The note actually would have taken over 20 minutes to write, though, so where would the killer have found the time? Are we expected to believe that they broke into the house, pulled up a chair to write this all down while the family slept, and then committed the murder? Not necessarily. The killer could have been there all along. Oh god, that's so creepy. He's just way in there. <laughs> Even if the doors were all locked that night after the party, an intruder could have entered the home while they were at the party. With so many windows and doors on the first floor, as well as potentially accessible balconies, there are a myriad possible points of entry. Yeah, that's the problem. You've got a big house. There's lots of places for people to break in. Like, uh, the more <laughs> the, the bigger your house is... The, the more likely you're just going to leave a window open, there's going to be a door unlocked, someone could just work out a way in, they climb up to a balcony. Yeah. Set your burglar alarm, all right? And the doors may have all been locked that night, but as we said, it's alleged that this was not always the case, and their alarm was frequently left off. What are you doing? You live in a palace. Why aren't you turning your burglar alarm on? That just seems like insanity. The killer could have spent hours in the house before the Ramses returned home. This would have been ample time to study and try and copy Patsy's writing, or it could have been someone else known to the family who was already familiar with her writing, and also time to find the receipt from John's $118,000 deposit for his bonus. By copying Patsy's handwriting and including John's oddly specific bonus amount, as well as making the ransom note long-winded and silly, the intruder would have been able to construct a piece of evidence that would implicate both of the Ramses. The house was also decorated with a number of movie posters, so they could have delivered included many a movie homage to further try and cast suspicion on the family. That seems like a bit of a stretch, doesn't it? <laughs> I just think the person's a bit dim and has watched too many movies. But the copying of the handwriting thing... There's a lot of unlikely things in this episode. And I don't think this is less likely than anything else. I find it very hard to believe, despite the similarities in the handwriting, that it was um, Patsy who did this and who wrote the notes. I just find that a real stretch even though the handwriting is so similar, so I think this is a possible explanation. In this scenario, the intruder could have hidden inside the guest bedroom located directly next to John Bonet's bedroom. The window had a perfect view of the driveway to see oh, when the Ramses were coming home from the party, and it was also obstructed by a tree, making it difficult for any nosy neighbors or passers-by to see that someone was at the window. The bathroom for the guest bedroom had two drawers that were partially open, very seemingly out of place for a house that was regularly attended to by housekeepers. Furthermore, there was a length of climbing rope found in the room as well. The origins of this rope have not been determined, but allegedly it does not 
belong to the Ramses. It is possible, as put forth by John, that it could have belonged to his son John Andrew from his previous marriage. The guest room was frequently used by John Andrew, who enjoyed backpacking and such, but the rope still remains an unknown. There's also the matter of DNA. We mentioned before the DNA of an unidentified male that was on John Bonnet's clothing. Specifically, the DNA was on either side of the waistband of her long johns, as well as mixed into two drops of her blood that were found in her panties. The bleeding is believed to be the results of sexual assault, so this touch DNA could conceivably be from someone pulling down her long johns and other stuff. Finally, there is the matter of the marks on Trombonet's back and neck. It has been put forth that these were caused by a stun gun, specifically the air taser. This particular assertion has been the subject of a lot of debate. Air taser claimed that their taser could not leave the sort of marks found on Trombonet, and for there to be two sets of perfectly uniform marks on a squirming child would be impossible. Regardless of what the company PR department had to say, everyone should know that the term stun gun is a misnomer as tasers do not literally stun a person. They make the person's muscles convulse and normally it elicits a whole lot of screaming. The argument was that when used on a six-year-old girl, it would make them faint rather than the effects we see on adults who are tased. Fortunately, this theory has never been tested because, well, good luck getting that experiment past the ethics board, but that means there's also no evidence to rule out such an assertion. So, if it was an intruder, who could have done such a thing? Well, there are many theories. It could have been a family friend, someone that knew the Ramses well. There were no signs of struggle in Trombonet's bedroom, so if there wasn't a taser, it would make sense that the killer was someone she knew. Another theory is that it was some pervert that saw her in pageants and became obsessed with her, or even a pageant judge. There were, in fact, two separate convicted paedophiles who confessed to her murder. <laughs> bizarre people confessing to murders it's like it's, I, I used to find that extraordinary and now i'm just like yeah okay <laughs> people confess to crimes when they didn't do them weird thing one was proven to be a false confession likely from someone seeking notoriety the other man confessed on multiple occasions most recently from prison in 2019 he had been on boulder's police radar since at least 2000 but they seem unconvinced by his confessions why not test his dna with the unknown dna have we not done that why haven't we done that? With or without the taser, the intruder theory is far from impossible. Someone sneaking in while the family were out, writing a fake ransom note to frame the parents, then sexually assaulting and murdering John Bonnet doesn't sound that ridiculous. In fact, there's one man for whom it was the leading theory. I think this, I, th I mean, I started off with different opinions, but having considered all of this, and this has been fairly in-depth, and I'm not saying I'm suddenly some expert on the case, but I am leaning quite heavily in the direction of it being this outside, and it feels like such a cop-out to say, oh, it's the mystery man. But it doesn't seem like any of the others. There seems to be a lot of stuff that indicates that it could be this, could be a outsider. Um, yeah. Okay. Detective Lou Smith if the ransom note sounds like it belongs in a movie, Lou Smith is the detective from that movie. Lou Smith had been a detective in a different county in Colorado, but three months into the investigation into John Bonnet's murder, the district attorney pulled him out of retirement to work the case. He boasted a career of over 200 murder investigations with a 100% conviction rate. Legend. If this guy... <laughs> can you imagine being a criminal and this guy's on your case? You're like, oh shit. You're so screwed. Lou Smith was the guy which is not the guy Boulder wanted. I imagine Simon already made a comment about this, but to be clear, a 100% conviction rate for over 200 cases is fucking unbelievable. I don't mean that like, wow, that's so incredibly amazing. I mean, 
I don't believe it. It does not seem possible to boast such an impressive record while conducting all of your investigations in a completely above-board manner. Well, there's no evidence of this. Maybe he just goes, maybe he's just put on cases where he knows he's gonna lock it down. He was involved in several high-profile cases, so maybe he really was just that good, but the record seems a bit suspicious. Okay, Kevin, throw that shade. However, remember this was not some private investigator hired by the Ramseys to clear their names. The dude was pulled out of retirement by the DA to get a conviction. Lou was the first investigator to take the intruder theory seriously. So seriously, in fact, that he went on to declare the Ramseys did not do it in his resignation letter in 1998. He was the person that proposed the marks on JonBenet were made by the air taser and that the ransom note had been written before the murder took place. I just think this Lou guy seems pretty smart, to be honest. Honest. The Boulder police were not fans of this line of reasoning, which is ultimately what led to Lou's resignation from the case after working on it for 18 months. He felt that the Boulder PD had immediately determined that the Ramses were guilty and tunnel visions them as the only suspects, ignoring a substantial amount of evidence that he felt pointed to the fact that they really was an intruder. If this is a, th- a huge problem with police and, lo- and people, humanity in general, like people get like... Um, tunnel vision on a specific idea and they will just pursue that relentlessly even and they'll just ignore new evidence and all of this stuff like i i like to think i'm a human as well obviously but i like to think i'm aware of this so i try to like combat it like at the beginning of this i was pretty convinced like yeah it sounds like the sun it sounds like the burke dude did it doesn't it and then you kind of read it and you're like no it wasn't him even though it was really easy to look, get locked into that at the beginning uh uh, Lou is not the only person to criticize the police for seeming to focus their investigations solely on the Ramses, just the only one to do so from the inside. Wrap up. You did it, Simon. You finally made it to the end of the script. As long as this was, there are so many things that I wish we had extra time to discuss today. There's the matter of how many bikes there were at Christmas, the pedophile phone call to his childhood friend the day of John Bonnet's murder saying, I hurt a little girl, John Andrew's semen rag that was inside the Samsonite briefcase in the basement. Oof, dude. Whether or not Jean Bonnet was even abused by an adult, or if she and Burke were playing doctor, the debate over whether the pineapple was canned or fresh and so, so much more. As for who did it, I have no fucking idea. Unless there's a lot more evidence that has been kept secret, I think for all four options are both likely enough and have enough flaws that it would be impossible to get a conviction in the face of reasonable doubt. That's probably why no one's ever been charged with the murder. Yeah, we're so far beyond reasonable doubt. It just, it's just regular doubt. Like there's just, yeah, it doesn't, I don't know. It doesn't seem very likely that any of these people did it. And then the outside intruder, who I kind of think is probably the most likely thing, is uh, we don't even know who they are. So, well, that that's just that's just ruins everything. If I had to rank them from least to most likely, I'd probably say John, Patsy, Intruder, Burke. Whoa! <laughs> Kevin and I, we are on different pages. I would say Intruder... Oh, God, Burke, John, Patsy. I don't know. Would I? For me, Intruder's quite high above all of these guys. But that order has changed multiple times from when I first started researching this. That's one of the things that makes this case so unusual. Even if they're absolutely sure they know who did it, can find themselves changing their minds when a new variation of the theory is proposed. I look forward to seeing how you'd rank them, Simon. And by all means, everyone else can get in the comments with their opinions or just congratulate Simon for managing to sit through 34 pages of child murder. This was really long. This is many hours long. I started this this morning and it's now mid-afternoon. I take breaks because it's so long, Kevin, and I can't deal with so much horror without stopping to do something else. Um, This has been an episode of Casual Criminals. Thank you so much for watching. I'll see you next time. Leave a review if you fancy it, a rating, a comment, a subscribe. Thank you very much. Bye for now.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.